from Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Technical Facilities Manager Gary Meyerberg-Louder. First of all, if you're not aware, Google has a number of music service offerings that are somewhat confusing. They have Google Play Music, there's YouTube Music, and there's YouTube Red. So you kind of scratch your head and you go, wait a second, which one do I want? And even worse, you find that if you sign up for one or the other, then you get them all. So why do they have different ones? Well, first of all, Google Play Music is the service that's most like Spotify or Apple Music in that it's a subscription service. You get access to 30 million songs or more by now. And it's really no different than the competition. Now, you come over to YouTube, and YouTube got tired of actually giving everything away, so decided to offer a service for a charge called YouTube Red. And YouTube Red allows you to watch videos without being disturbed by any kind of ads. And you can also listen offline. YouTube Music, in fact, is an app that goes along with YouTube Red. So this is all very confusing, and YouTube has finally figured that out and has now made an announcement that they're going to consolidate them. This is basically fair warning, because they didn't really say how they're going to be consolidated or when it's going to happen or what it's going to be called, except for the fact that there is going to be just one Google slash YouTube music service coming up in the future. Now, to make it even more confusing, they have something called YouTube TV, which is completely separate, and what that is it's basically their version of Netflix, only based around YouTube with programmed television shows as well. And in fact, it's getting rave reviews, but it's only rolled out so far to five or six different cities, LA, New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and there may be another one in the Midwest, 35 bucks a month. And it looks like it's going to be something that's going to be really good. Now, will that be part of of YouTube music? Will it all come into play? You pay one price and you get everything, television and music? We don't know. But be on the lookout for this because what it means is Google is actively going after all the competition. Now, if I were Spotify, I would really be worried because between Google and Amazon and Apple, of course, they can eat their lunch without even worrying about it. Even though Spotify has just cleared 60 million paid subscribers, that doesn't mean too much in the long run if Google Music and if Apple Music and if Amazon Music all start to really go after it, which I think you're going to see coming up in the near future. So the landscape of streaming music may change very soon. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. You can also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, recently I've gotten a number of comments, a number of questions, both on Bobby Osinski courses, on Facebook, separate emails to me, all about the same subject, and that's adding a subwoofer. And most of the time, people are adding it because they can't get the low end that they want. And instead of buying new larger speakers, which isn't possible sometimes, and of course is a lot more expensive, then an alternative would be to add a subwoofer. The only problem with that is the fact that there are 
a number of pitfalls if you're not careful. So here's some suggestions. The first one is if you're going to add a subwoofer, try to add the same brand as your normal speakers, as your main speakers. So in other words, if you're listening on Yamaha speakers and add a Yamaha subwoofer, if you're listening on KRKs, then add a KRK subwoofer and so forth. The reason why is they're perfectly matched, and you'll find that at the crossover point, it will just sound a lot smoother because they're a pair. They're matched. They're supposed to work together, and they do. So that would be the first thing. Try to buy the same brand. The second thing is position is really important. You can't just put it someplace because it's convenient because it might not actually sound that good, do you much good at that particular point. So the best thing is sit in the mixer's position, play some music, and move it around. And when you find a spot that seems to be the smoothest sounding, then that's where I'd put it. Now, if that's not possible, you have to put it as close to that spot as you can. But positioning is really important. It's something to take into consideration. You, you can't just do it by sight and hope that it works. The next thing is calibration. Maybe this is the most important out of all of them. Most people calibrate by ear, and you can't do it that way. The best way to calibrate any subwoofer is to shoot pink noise into the main speaker. Just one. So your left main monitor, shoot pink noise into it. Then get an SPL meter, either handheld one, a re real one, or one on your smartphone. There's plenty of apps now. And then set it for 80 dB, 85 dB, 82 dB. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. So let's just say it's 85 dB. Okay, after you got that, then put pink noise only into the subwoofer and then calibrate it for 6 dB less. So in other words, if your main speaker was 85 dB, your subwoofer will be 79 dB. Why is that? Well, there are fewer bands. We hear different on the low end, and 6 dB and minus 6 dB actually turns out to be just the right level. So that calibration is really important. The meter is going to jump a lot, so don't expect it to go to 79 dB and just sit there because that's probably not what's going to happen. It's going to jump around a whole bunch. And then finally, Usually subwoofers have some sort of a polarity control. So make sure you switch that polarity control and make sure you find the spot where it actually sounds better. What does that mean? It means wherever you seem to have the most low end and you don't have a hole in the response as well. Sometimes you get a lot of low end, but you find that in the upper base, you'll have a hole. And of course that's no good either. So you don't want that. So play with that polarity control and see if one position feels better than the other. Finally, if you can afford dual subs, that's actually the best. <laughs> it may defeat the purpose. At that point, you may just want to get bigger speakers. But every room I've ever been in that had dual subs really sounded terrific. And I can't say the same for rooms that just had one. What's the best way around this? Well, whatever speakers you're using, learn what the low end sounds like. Get a whole bunch of reference material where you love what the low end sounds like and study it on your particular speakers and then try to make your mixes sound like that. And sometimes that works better than adding any kind of speakers, changing speakers, adding subwoofers, any of that stuff. My guest today is Gary Meyerberg-Lauder, who's installed and maintained studios for major facilities and superstar artists. Gary's worked at the famed A&M Studios, set up a major portable recording rig for Bruce Springsteen, helped run L.A.'s famous cello studios, then brought it back to life as East West, and now manages the technical operations for five of L.A.'s busiest studios. I spoke with him via phone as he was on the job at one of his client studios in Southern California. How did you get into the business? How, how did you become the tech maven that you are? Because I know that's a process, and most people don't start out doing that. 
Yeah, I think for me, I was very fortunate um, that in my days in the 70s in the L.A. City school system, they had they had shop classes. And uh, in my junior high school, had electronic shop, and uh, we had band, you know, we had instruments on site there. And I really just fell in love with electronics. My, uh, my teacher was, was an amazing guy, an old Navy guy. And uh, he really took me under wing. And, you know, back then it was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And I was so enthusiastic. I ended up spending most of my ninth grade year in the electronics shop. So, you know, we were building guitar amps, building effects pedals, doing all kinds of audio related and stuff. So I kind of got the bug early on. I came from the East Coast, and we didn't have that in the East Coast at all, at least not where I grew up, where you had an electronics shop. Because, boy, I would have been there myself. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we had electronics shop. We had print shop. We had wood shop. We had plastics. I mean, these are all, you know, this is all pre-Reagan California. Um, I think all the shops kind of got pulled out, and education got reoriented towards, you know, core curriculum, unfortunately. And uh, all of that stuff kind of got pulled out, you know. But uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to do that and uh, just kind of carried on with that throughout my guitar playing. Because I was a musician, so um, back in L.A. in those days, we had kind of these, these kind of technical guitar schools. There was one called Guitar Institute of Technology. Um, I went there for like their second, second semester and then... Dick Grove had a wonderful school over on Ventura and I took a whole bunch of stuff over there and the Cal State Northridge and was, you know, I had my own fusion band back then and we played a lot and, and it was just all kind of an all encompassing thing. So my dad's um, close friend's son was working at a place in LA called Beaver and Krause, which was one of the original electronic music studios and, I was very deeply into synthesizers back in those days and, and uh, loved the idea of the Fairlight and things like that. And uh, my dad introduced me to this guy, Jim Seiford, and uh, I went to work for this place. Beaver and Krause became Sound Arts, which was downtown. And that's really where it all started. They kind of, you know, the owner, everything, everybody was in a kind of a blizzard of blow and madness. And a couple of us kids kind of were the whole place kind of fell on us to keep it going. And it was, uh, we did a lot of amazing things over there. How long were you there? That was your first studio gig then, right? Yeah, that was the very first gig. My dad got, you know, introduced me to Jim and I, I actually, I worked my first year there. I actually worked for free. I, uh, they, they, they agreed to buy me lunch and teach me everything. Cause I didn't know anything about what they were doing then. And, uh, I guess, since they always loved to go to this place called Edwards downtown, which was a steakhouse and they had to hire me or they were going to go broke. <laughs> so, uh, eventually after about a year, they hired me over there. How long were you there? I was there for about a year and a half. Things really kind of spiraled out of control and it had a lot, it had like seven owners at that point. And so one of the owners, a guy named Aisley Otten, had basically him and a partner had gone ahead and bought an SSL back in 1984. And uh, we're going to install it in early 85. And Aisley basically said that if I came and worked for them, they would send me to what was called SSL school. And then I could help install the console. And then I could run, help, help them run this little 
uh, one room place um, in Burbank that was called Master Control, which was over on uh, uh, Burbank and Hollywood Way over in that right, actually right right next to the Coral Cafe. Oh yeah, okay, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those everything audio turnkey rooms from yeah. the day. <laughs> How did you get to A and M then? Well, when when I was over at Sound Arts, basically uh, my mentor was this guy, Gary Starr, who's still around, a great guy. And a bunch of us kids used to kind of hang around Gary, and Gary brought this guy, uh, a close friend of mine, Mark DeSisto, over to, uh, over to Sound Arts. And we were very good friends, and so we hung out a lot, and, you know, we'd go out drinking and have, you know, just doing the stuff that guys in their 20s would be doing. And uh, Mark got the gig over at A&M and kind of disappeared into there. And then I went over to Master Control. And about a year into Master Control, um, Mark called me and said that he had got me an interview uh, to come over to A&M and work with them. So uh, was, uh, that was how I got in over there. That was a great environment. I used to work down there occasionally when it was at its peak. And it was just, you can't describe it. There was some vibe there that, Herb and Jerry instilled in the place that was just fantastic. Yeah, I was very fortunate. Um, I went, I, I didn't really believe that I would get the gig, to be honest with you. I kind of, I kind of went there and like cutoffs and a, and a t-shirt and flip-flops and I walked into the back office and there's a bunch of guys in suits with briefcases and, you know, just all ready to, to do it. And I walked into the, uh, it's like a panel. It was, uh, it was Shelly Akis and Mike Morangel and uh, Bill Dooley and uh, Cheryl Lazarus, who was the, uh, the manager. No, no, it wasn't. It was Paul Sloman. And I walked in, and, uh, and, and they looked me up and down, and then Bill Dooley looked at me, and he, he said, so, Gary, he goes, yeah, he goes, so could you tell me on your resume, uh, are you an expert at collages? And I looked at him, and I realized that I had misspelled college on my hastily assembled resume. And I came back with some kind of New York wise crack. And then we all started getting into this kind of East coast wise cracking thing. I'm, I'm originally from New York and we all just hit it off. And so basically they, they back in those days, they didn't hire you. They gave you a paycheck for two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, they would make a decision on whether you would get hired or not. And uh, so I was really just, sucked into the whole place, super enthusiastic, uh, got hired within a few days of being there. And, uh, Bill Dooley really took me under wing and Herb Alpert asked Bill, you know, who was going to be my guy at the studio? Who's my go-to guy. And, uh, Bill basically, you know, handed me over to Herb and, uh, I did all of Herb stuff, you know, for all the years I was there until the end of that run which was when herb left a lot in 92 although our relationships continue to this day but uh you know there was a lot of um a&m was a place where they once you were in they were going to make sure they cultivated a career for you that not necessarily would continue there we had kind of an out plan for the engineers once the assistants got good enough uh herb would let them leave and go work and continue to get paid by a&m um, a lot of guys got that, which was really great to have the float. And myself, um, once I started working in, in 89, I started working for Bruce Springsteen. I, I was in with the whole kind of Bruce click there. And 
the first thing that happened was, was that Bob Claremountain asked me to build his studio in Rita's Canyon with him. And that was a pretty big deal because he was the guy that basically booked, you know, 280 days in our mix room over there. So I went through the studio and Shelly and her, everybody let me do it. Shelly just basically said, look, he's going to do it one way or the other. So they, they released me to do that. And then uh, through that whole thing, I got really close with Toby Scott and started doing all of Bruce Springsteen studios and remotes and going on the road with him and, a&M would let me leave for, you know, three or four weeks at a time and go out on the road with Bruce and then come back. So it was an insanely empowering place. It really was. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd never, I have never seen anything like it since. Uh, but they really, they really took a personal interest in every, everybody that got in there. That's for sure. When you were working for Bruce, I knew that he recorded everything and, and he had a fairly extensive setup that went with him on the road, but I didn't realize that he had his own studio. Well, there's Thrill Hill. I guess he did. Sure. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were Thrill Hill. So basically Thrill Hill was, uh, Chuck Pockin and Toby Scott, myself, and a couple of different guys that, that were the assistants of Toby. It was really Toby's show. And, uh, when I initially came in there, I modified a gigantic, uh, Amic Angelo which we took on the road with us in a gigantic case that weighed like 3,600 pounds. It was crazy. And then um, they came to me and they wanted to redo the system and they gave me the opportunity to do one from scratch. And at that time I was very much with the Euphonics. I really loved the Euphonics console. So I did a, a 96 channel Euphonics with two 3348s and seven tip-up racks. Um, all based on this gigantic DL, this 36010 DL. And we had that system so we could basically have that thing up and running in a, within an hour, about 45 minutes. So Bruce never really had the studio proper until probably early 2000s. Up until that point, what we would do is we would take these remote rigs that were designed to fit in the nose of the band truck, and we'd set it up in, a, in the living room. We had, it was you know, over when he lived up in Bel Air, we would do it over there. Uh, after the earthquake, he moved to Stone Canyon. We'd do it over there, um, take it back to New Jersey. And there's this one of his house properties called Stone Hill Farm. And we would set it up in there. So we'd set it up all over. And that was basically how we did it on the road, too. Wherever they could find a spot for us, uh, we would just break out the gear and set it up. So that was, that was great. And I'm, I, still, I still do work with Toby and, and, and Bruce occasionally. I used to work for AMEC way back when, and I remember selling the, that console to Toby. actually yeah. saw it in a couple places where, you know, I happened to be there where Bruce was, so they'd take me in the back room and show me the what they were doing. And it was very cool. I, again, it was hard to believe that they would take that everywhere Bruce was. That's <laughs> a big console. No, we did. We, we, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was really big, and in the end, I... I completely tweaked it out. We had direct outs on all the channels and it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, it was good, but obviously Toby really fell into the euphonics really quickly. And for Bruce, you know, kind of the instant resetability of jumping from song to song, really, he, it just, he was very stoked about having that. So, you know, for me, we had a good run with that, with that system. I mean, it went out on four tours and, and uh, Bruce keeps everything. I mean, everything that we that's ever that he's ever owned, we have in a warehouse 
You know, we still have the Nebraska Porta Studio. You know, we have every single incarnation of every rig he's ever had. And then, of course, we have just, you know, tens of thousands of hours of recorded, you know, music and uh, video and everything else. And right now that's Toby's big project because they're doing a big uh, Bruce Springsteen Museum in Jersey. And uh, they're getting all the archival material together and putting the thing together right now, which I think is his big project at this moment okay so from there you went to cello well you know basically i i had uh i had 15 years at a&m and all these projects in between i actually also in between in 95 i left for a year and went and built royal town with joe ciccarelli and alan sides which is uh, funny enough is where i'm at now which is called sphere and then you know went back there was chief for a few years and then uh candace called me up and asked me to come work with her over a cello with uh, John Porter. And uh, that was a thrilling opportunity. And, you know, couldn't, that was just a once in a lifetime. And, and that was probably, yeah, I think cello would probably be the highlight of my life as far as uh, studios, because in the end, the owner of cello just left it to Candace and I to run as we saw fit. He didn't want to be bothered. And uh, so we ran it as if it was our own. We had to make payroll. We had to pay the taxes, everything we had to pay. And, but we also were empowered to make all the decisions and do all the stuff. And I thought we did quite well over there. It was, it was a lot of fun to be, uh, to be the, to be the owner without having all the, uh, to own it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. The other thing about that place is the fact that it's, it's so historic. So how did you approach that? Because there, obviously there are certain things that you don't want to touch because of its history. Yeah, well, I would say that, you know, there, there were several surprises at Cello. The first thing being that the, the situation with the building itself was in, in severe dis, disrepair. Um, the, the owners were the lot, you know. In the end, I know a lot of people assumed that Ocean Way actually physically owned the premises, but they didn't. So I think there was a lot of passing back and forth of the responsibilities for the building. So I'd say that at the point of cello, the building suffered a great deal from, from many, many things that would have made it a bit removed from what Bill Putnam would have had in the 60s and 70s. There was probably, there was a whole bunch of stuff. So when we tragically closed, when, uh, when, when I went back there to do East West, I had the opportunity to put all that stuff back the way it was even literally before Ocean Way. And that was down to some really nitty gritty stuff. Like for example, in studio one, uh, the board is, is a pegboard. But back in the sixties, the pegboard basically had holes that were a half inch on center or one inch on center. And a lot of the stuff had been replaced through the years. Some of it was basically four to six inch on center. So I went ahead and had guys literally drill out that board to make it old, you know, one inch on center. And we replaced all of those panels. And then up on top of the studio one, there was probably literally three tons of debris <laughs> because once I got approval to remove it all, it was seven 40 yard junk containers, like big rigs worth of junk and crap and ratchet and, dead pigeons and you name it that I pulled off of the top of that lid. So for all of those years, 
that lid wasn't live, if you get what I'm saying. It, it, it had all this weight on it. So once we had removed all that stuff, I thought the room just started working even better. And, uh, you know, little things like some of the details in Studio 3, I found the original, so like on the back wall, there's a, there's a low-end kind of uh, baffle back there, big wood baffle that had these little squares that I could see in all the Beach Boys, you know, all the old footage. And sure enough, when we were pulling the debris out, I found them all. So we put those back. Um, and then the best thing I got to do was we had a really bad electrical situation in there. You know, the power was, was literally lethal. I think people were counting on nobody getting in between the console and the tape machine. <laughs> so I got to redo all the power um, to the best, the best power we could possibly put in. So that was great. So we put the rooms back the way they were supposed to be. We put the power in and I lost the battle about the hallways and the rest of the facility. I really just wanted to just reopen, but uh, they went ahead and did that implementation. Of the, I worked with Philippe Stark for 26 months over there um, implementing that, that, what they did. Um, it is what it is. But anyway, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great to be able to go back and actually put the stuff back right. Okay, but how did you know what it was to go back to? Oh, no, I've done a lot of research and have lots of friends. Um, you know, everybody in the wrecking crew were friends of mine. Um, so many of the people that, were, that, that dealt with the studio back in the day that worked for Bill Putnam, we did a lot of research and a lot of digging in, a lot of archival stuff. And also, you know, basically what had happened uh, is between Cello and East West, uh, the, the, the roof flooded and the, the whole building got flooded out. So the entire building, basically in Studio One, there was four inches of water in there for about two months. Oh. Um, so the entire, all, all, everything was rotten. All the electronics was green. Uh, the 8028 in Studio Two, you could basically just blow the transistors off the boards because all the leads had rusted off. Oh. Um, and say the same thing was with the building. So I actually got to peel back all of Bill Putnam's construction and acoustics. You get what I'm saying? So I yeah. can put it back correctly. Yeah. And... By doing that, I really learned so much about what he was doing and what needed to be put back right. I could see what was added. I could see what was, what was from the past. And we went to just go. I had full faith and credit to put it back the way it was. And uh, the, only thing that, the only thing we didn't do was we didn't put the panel flips back in because Bill himself had pulled them out. But there was a time in studio one where those faceted panels would flip from live to dead. They had, they had motors at the top. And, uh, I did a lot of research on it and found out that once Bill implemented it, he hated it. So he had it taken out and had everything screwed and painted shut. So we ended up not doing that. You got a chance to do something that most people will never do. And that's actually, as you say, pull back, the, the curtain, so to speak, on, on what Bill did. So what is the difference between what his vision of the studio should be as compared to the way studios are built today? Acoustically, I'm, I'm talking about. I, I, would, I would say that, that Bill's vibe was to have, was to have a, a, a place where he would go ahead and he, he, I don't think he would have ever pictured a room 
as being anything but a rectangle your kind of situation, number one. I think that he was always, it was always important to him to have a, 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 like a live floor underneath him. So most of the floors were raised, except, and I do believe in Studio One it was at one point. Um, he liked, he, he saw the value in wood, um, in, in wood that wasn't finished with gloss coating. Uh, his, his style of, um, of diffusers and absorbers was very, very elemental and basic. There wasn't a lot of deep science to it, but it worked really well. And also, everything he did was very, very frugal. The implementation was very inexpensive. Hmm. I think that in the end, you know, the, the, the Tom Hidley, the, the, uh, the Sierra audio, the Westlake audio rooms came in, uh, Carl Yanker, uh, the compression ceilings. Uh, these are all things that, that, that you know, I, that's all that I knew. It's all I knew all the way up until the point that I went in and took over 6,000. But I have to tell you that in those rooms, at, at that time we had the Oceanway main monitors in there. I mean, I was also, I guess a lot of it had to do with the, also the ATR 124s, but I just had, I had more information coming off of the tapes that I had recorded and I had done through my life. It was pretty stunning. I really had... I had more depth in my listening experience in the rooms over at 6,000 than any of the rooms I had at A&M or any of the other places I was at. Wow. And so I think that just having enough space, I think, you know, go moving more towards what a living room would be than a technical control room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, what did Bill use in terms of fiberglass? There wasn't 703 back then, or was there? Or what was he using? No, there was a, it was a similar product. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, I, don't know, I don't know what it would have been called back then, but yeah, it was compressed fiberglass. Most of the stuff I found was more uh, compressed rock wool and rock wool, to be honest with you. Oh, uh, okay. Makes versus sense. Versus fiberglass. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, from there you went to Hawaii, so that's a big jump. It was. Yeah, I would, ha I would, I would say that, that um, the end of my run was was not a pleasant experience. And it's also, to be honest with you, seven years ago, um, LA audio in general wasn't a pleasant experience. And I was kind of sitting in a position where I was facing that I could stay in LA and work for half, but if I'm going to work for half, why don't I just move to Maui and, you know, start over there was, you know, I was, I was, you know, chasing a woman out there, I was thinking I was going to, you know, change my life and reinvent myself at 50. You know, I was kind of getting into this whole kind of delusional mindset. And, of course, it ended up being a delusional mindset because, of course, I moved out there. And the first thing was we blew out. Then I ended up in like a crash pad for surfers over on the Peely Beach. And then I ended up working, you know, for people doing audio and building studios <laughs> I ended up working for a radio station out there, climbing towers and doing transmitters was like my main, that was my main gig for, for the, for the six years I was out there. But, uh, you know, everything isn't quite what you think. And, uh, to be honest with you, Hawaii really wasn't for me. And, uh, my, my you know, my kids are getting older. My parents are getting older and I just figured I was going to come back to LA and, uh, 
I really, at that point, I didn't have any indication I was going to be able to make a living doing what I was doing out here. I really didn't. I came out six months before. I wasn't too optimistic. But for some reason, I came out, and the first thing I did was, you know, the day I landed, uh, I started installing an SSL over at Aftermaster. And then um, after that, I got a call from Francesco and Megan at Sphere, and they had me come over there and offered me, a, you know, like kind of a kind of a pseudo residency where I could, as long as I took care of them, I could do all kinds of other outside work and use that as a home base. And that worked out great. And then uh, the next thing I knew, Kit called me up over at Glenwood and they needed help. And so I got that going on. And then uh, after that, uh, James over at uh, Evergreen called me. And so I've just been kind of keeping all these balls in the air, trying to, you know, keep everybody happy and, I started turning down work. I've got a couple of big studio projects. I'm doing one back east and one out here. And uh, this week, I just started thinking I'm just going to have to start saying no, which is hard to do. But I just I, I didn't come back to L.A. to be all stressed out. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a nice position to be in when you're wanted like that. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was unexpected, but um, I'll take I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself more as uh, someone who does installations and specializes in that or someone that's uh, more just on the maintenance side? I would say neither. I would say, of course, maintenance side, but I would say basically my, my gig is technical facilities management. So it's, it's managing all the aspects of the engineering and the technical and the running of the technical of major recording facilities. That's, that's what I've done all my life. And of course that includes installations and designs and acoustics and electrical. I was very fortunate in my life that growing up, I worked for a subcontractor. So I learned all the trades. So, you know, I know everything. I know M E N P. I can read blueprints. I know electrical. I know air conditioning. I know structural you know, foundations, and then I know all that stuff. So when I do manage projects, you know, I'm kind of playing the role of the owner's representative. And uh, so really, it's really facilities technical management is kind of, I think, what I, what I do. It encompasses all the things you're talking about. But lately, I've been noticing that I really, I'm so busy doing that, that I'm I, I'm not like taking outboard gear in, into my shop. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I yeah. stopped doing that. I just don't have the time. There's been a big change in audio over the last, well, 15 years or so where everything is now so software based. And of course we're looking at digital audio workstations as kind of the centerpiece where the recorder used to be. So that means that you had to take a new direction into software so what was that like, being a hardware guy and then suddenly have to being a software guy as well? Well, you know, I think, I think the, the funny thing is, is that actually at A&M back in the late 80s and early 90s, um, you know, we were very, very deeply into that before anybody else was. You know, we had Dave Collins over there and mastering with the Sonic Solution system. You know, I was very deeply involved with that stuff. And then Bob Rock was working with us constantly, and Bob is really... I mean, to be perfectly honest, he's kind of the father of our country in this, in what we're doing now, because back in those days with sound tools, uh, we were basically, you know, blowing stuff in and out of the 3348 into sound tools and editing it and blowing it back in and, 
And this is way before anybody was really doing anything. It was, you know, that was like, you know, we're doing it on the Metallica Black album, um, Molly Crew. You know, we were doing all these records. I remember at one NAM show we went to that we had brought the disc. I think there was 32,000 edits on the fucking disc or something. It was like some, you know, one, like 24 songs or something like that. (laughs) And they flipped out at Digi Design. They didn't know what the hell we were doing. They thought we were absolutely crazy. But... So I've been involved in that kind of thing from its inception. And then I've kind of struggled through the whole thing with, you know, I, I designed uh, the digital converters over, over at A&M in the day. We had our own kind of proprietary ultra analog implementation over there. Um, was always very deep in the digital audio um, from the very, very beginnings, you know, trying to make it better. And so it's, it, it's never been that much of a push for me. Um, I will point out the fact that if you understand the language of technology and you've been in a support role with people that are so volatile, you understand that you do not need to know every single thing about Pro Tools 12 in order to serve them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I need to serve them at the machine level. Oh, it's not working. Oh, it's not locking. Oh, it's not clocking. Oh, it's not booting, all this other stuff. But once I get the machine running, their expertise takes over. I don't need to know all that shit. I, I'm, a, I'm basically a logic guy at my house because, you know, even on my wages, I can't afford, <laughs> I can't afford a Pro Tools rig. So I run logic at my place with Apogee, and I'm pretty much a logic guru as far as that stuff goes. But I don't, it doesn't really matter what workstation or what software my client's using. I have enough of a basis knowledge that I can get them going on on everything. I mean, originally when I got my job over at Beaver and Krause, I lied to them and said I knew how to program the Fairlight page R because I found out the Fairlight was running CPM and I was hacking it at that point. Hmm. Uh, so it's, I've always been, I've always been in that, in that kind of realm. So it's, it hasn't been much for me. I think, now, as I'm taking care of all these different studios, I'm like my old life where I basically was like in one large facility. I'm seeing a lot of different cultures. I think that for the most part, Sphere, well, Sphere is like the rock and roll culture and how you're doing rock and roll records these days. We just, you know, we did the uh, Linkin Park's new record and we've done the Stone Sour record, which I think is number one for four weeks now. And that's a very straight ahead rock and roll situation. Everything has to be hundred percent with Francesco over there. No, no fucking around. Every single thing has to be perfect. Every cha- everything's got to work. And, and it's firing on all cylinders when we're doing those sessions over there. When I go over to Glenwood place, that is a pure hip hop studio. That's like the top 10 studio. That's, you know, you look at the top 10 in billboard and at least half of those songs, are going to be done at Glenwood. And over there, those guys are in the box. Those guys have to have everything in the box, instantly recallable, instantly resettable. Um, so for the most part, you're going to have large consoles with maybe at the most eight faders. Up. <laughs> and those faders are all going to be stereo pairs. They're all going to be stereo pairs. And then you'll have one vocal chain fader. And that's kind of how it runs over there. So, over there, what I do is I have to have all the kids every month. They go through every switch and every button and every knob on every console. And they turn it and use it because otherwise, 
you'll go to use those channels. They won't work. And that's happening all over town. Huh. You know, all these studios that have the hip hop crowd in them, they're not using their desks and then you get a rock and roll or a pop or a film data in there and they can't do it because nothing's been used. So it's all crap, you know? So that's, that's the culture over there. Then Evergreen's culture is very interesting because they do, they got bought by runway. And so it's a post-production film, you know, dubbing kind of thing, but people love the 80, 78. So when I go over there, they're doing lots of big records and, you know, the other day I ran into Abraham Laboreal over there and all the old school guys and JR. And so that culture is still existing and pretty, pretty great. And uh, yeah, so each one has a different flavor of what's going on. But for the most part, I think Glenwood is obviously the representation of what the, you know, whatever the top 40 or what a top 10 or whatever you're talking about, this hip hop thing that, you know, I, I support it. I don't understand it, but I support it. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Their money's as green as anybody else. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let's get a little geeky for a second here. So what is the best piece of gear that you think you've ever come in contact with that you just think that this is the best piece of gear, most reliable thing that works, sounds best, is going to stand the test of time. Is there one piece like that? Well, God, man, there's a lot of, there's there's a lot of pieces like that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a rack full of stuff like that. You know, I mean, for me, you know, I would say that, that, I, that you got to have like a, you know, a, a 1176, less blackface, old version, got to have it. Um, if you can afford it, I would say I would love a 660 or a pair of those or a 670. I love that stuff. Um you know, you got to have some API for that brassy leaning in stuff. You know, there's, there's so much great gear out there. Um, and there, and, and even the new stuff, I mean, for like the distressor and like, I just got the arouser plug in and stuff like that. It's fantastic. I mean, it's just fantastic. Of course, you know, there's, uh, the, uh, there's just so many, so many great, I really, really love the, um, the retro 176. Yeah, yeah. This is like my go-to vocal chain. Yeah, it's like my go-to vocal chain. It's, it's amazing. Fucking amazing. Um, so many, so many great things out there right now. Um, okay, let's go the other way then. It's really, yeah. Let's go the other okay. way. What's the worst piece? Is there one piece that you ran into that you went, what were they thinking when they built this? Oh, man. No, I can't do that, dude. There's so many. I just, I just be such an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> not that I'm not. I'm just saying. You got to get a couple of tequilas in me, boy. I go off on some stuff. But let me tell you, I think, to be perfectly honest with you, I think that in the end, there's some really great gear out there that will go nameless that is not using quality pots and switches. And so, like, a few years from now, they're all going to be failing. And, and that's what I'm running into a lot. I'm running into, there's a lot of fucking great-sounding stuff. Everybody knows and loves it, but the quality of the switches is bad. And, I'm not, and although they feel good, when you go inside, you're going, oh, this, yeah, ticking time bomb. So I'm seeing quite a bit of that lately. I don't know if it's because the guys are really trying to, keep a price point but at this point i would say fuck the price point build it right because if they're already spending three grand they'll spend 3500 you know 
Got it's it. Like, just build it better. This yeah. would be my advice to manufacturers at this point. Is there one overriding maintenance tip that you would have for a studio owner of any size? Is there one thing that keeps on popping up that you go, why don't these people know this? You need to use it or lose it. You know, if you have a console and you're only bringing Pro Tools up on a couple of faders, you got to have, you got to go through those other faders and those other knobs and switches and you got to exercise them and use them. You got to do it consistently. You've got to do it monthly. You got to make sure you do it. If you're an active room where you're tracking and you're using the stuff all the time, that's another story. But even then, I would say that that's the best recommendation. And the same thing with outboard gear, because it's just a pots and switches sitting in one place. When you use them, it could be noisy and that may or may not be an issue, but I was kind of raised with Joe Ciccarelli. It's like I had to make sure that everything was going to be hot. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be hot next to tape. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, that's kind of, um, I want everything to be super clean all the time. And, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, that will be the, the most important thing to do beyond that. You know, it, it's just, you know, it's hard not to have people come in your studio that manhandle your gear. You know, there's just some people that, that are just hard on gear and you got to know those clients as well and have a good assistant in on them. Maybe they can reach and grab the stuff before they do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You do a lot of different things. What's the most fun to you? Oh, I think projects from scratch are the most fun for me. So, you know, being, having a, having an owner, a client bring a vision and working with a team to deliver that vision is that's the most fun. I think, you know, that was, uh, I got to do it so many times. I mean, I was, uh, you know, fully participating in the rebuilding of A&M back in the eighties. And then of course, you know, I've done, you know, a bunch of stuff with Springsteen and a bunch of, you know, obviously, Bob Clear Mountains, you know, place in Rivas Canyon, um, you know, all of these places, you know, where I'm at now, Sphere, that place, so many rooms that I started, you know, from inception and, you know, worked with a really great team to, to bring, you know, and, and I was very fortunate in the end that a lot of those rooms, after I built them, I got to move in and run them. So that, that was a lot of fun as well. So I'd say that's where the real joy is. And I'm happy to have a couple of those that I'm currently doing and uh, just just trying to make sure that I keep all of my studios happy while I'm doing projects at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, last question, Gary. You're in a particular unique situation to answer this because you've helped run many studios and not only from a technical standpoint, from a business standpoint. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Well, I think I got to first say that I really don't believe that there are any studios in existence that I would call true businesses. I mean, I hate to say that, but it is true. I think that every studio that I'm taking care of has some other means of support other than purely being the studio. And in the day, there's only one thing, and that is that you always say yes. There is never a situation with a client that comes into your studio that you say no. Um, you don't say no to smoking. You don't say no to, to you just don't say no. It's always yes. And if, and if you always say yes, then you're always going to be successful because that's the oldest rule for business. 
is that the customer is always right. No matter what kind of moron they are. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a situation. It's just, it's gotta be that way. And I will tell you that as far as when I worked with Candace all those years and everything that we did together, that that was the key to our success. It was never anything that we couldn't deliver to our clients ever. And they recognized that. And you know what? In the end, they might even pay a little bit extra to have that. You know, but that, that's the key. Just never say no. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.